0: Welcome, Choose Love podcast audience. I hope that you're having a great day and choosing love. I am so excited today to welcome Katie Mitchell, who is the president of Grow and Guides Kids in Arkansas. She is a licensed clinical social worker and registered play therapist. Hey, Katie, how are you today?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me on today.
0: Oh, absolutely. So Katie and I connected when uh, I think another educator had told her about the choose love enrichment program. And then Katie, you and I just met in person at the statewide choose love educator conference held in partnership with the university of Arkansas in Fayetteville last week.
1: Yes, it was great. I love the conference.
0: It was great, and I love how people from all over the country are attracted to the Choose Love movement and our message and uh, and wanting to be a part of it in some way. Katie, you are a childhood trauma expert. and when we spoke, I you know I, I, I see so much trauma when I'm in schools. Um, hey, we've experienced trauma in my own household on several, several different levels, uh, you know, throughout uh, JT and Jesse's life. And, uh, and so I know the impact that it can have and how we really need to be uh, more informed about what trauma is what it Mm -hmm. looks like, how it manifests, how it can, how it has the possibility of negatively impacting a child, not just in the present, but for their future in all ways, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and what we can do to help uh, reduce and even prevent those um, deleterious effects of trauma. but we know that there is a lot of trauma out there. Um, There was a study uh, called the ACEs study, which Mm -hmm. stands for adverse childhood experiences. This study is now 20 years old, but one that is still used and quoted most often. And uh, that study found that one in five kids was coming to school, traumatized. And, uh, and I know that today, there's studies by Clifford Beers, who's actually uh, located in Connecticut, a trauma informed agency that works in schools here that shows that really that number today is around 50%. And that's a lot of trauma. And that's a lot of kids in classrooms that are exhibiting a lot of different kinds of behaviors and have a lot of needs. And we know that kids that are traumatized are, 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 you know, what's we, we actually know a lot about what's going on in their brain and how it prevents them from learning. Can you talk a little bit about that, Katie? Katie?
1: Absolutely. So there's various things. I think the biggest thing that I come in contact with that is extremely misunderstood is what trauma is. Um, A lot of people think that it has to be something big that happens and something that maybe um, affects the entire family. They believe maybe a tornado or like what you guys experienced, the school shooting and people believe that trauma has to be big. However, that is not true, so the ACEs can also, we call them in the trauma world, little T's and big T's. Um, little traumas and big traumas. I honestly don't like that term because the brain cannot really decide if it's a little T or a big T. At the end of the day, the brain responds to maybe a teacher yelling at a child in a classroom. This, if they identify and feel like they're unsafe, the brain responds the exact same way than if you're in an F4 tornado. Wow. And absolutely. And a lot of people don't understand that. And so they often downplay the emotional abuse or stuff like that. But what happens is when trauma happens and something traumatic or scary, the first thing that goes off in our brain is the amygdala. And when that happens, the amygdala's job, I call her our car alarm, is she does not know if it's real danger or fake danger. So. That again is huge. The amygdala's job is not to say this is real, this is fake. So that also means that if uh, let's say a fire alarm goes off at the school, but there's not really a fire. It was just an accident. The brain is going to respond and say, danger, danger, danger. And it's up to the prefrontal cortex to catch up and say you're not in danger. However, the scary part about this or the part that we need to worry about is, Those traumatized kids often live in what Becky Bailey describes as the reptile brain. That's our brain stem. Yeah. That's where our fight, flight or freeze lives. Um, The crazy part about that brain, it is the only part of the brain that cannot learn and it cannot access memories. So those are three huge things and traumatized kids who come to us in the classroom or at home, are living in brainstem, which is a really scary place to live because a lot of other things in the brain happen in that phase. And so we're expecting these kids who walk in and brainstem to learn math and science and to show empathy and emotion and understanding. And we're expecting when honestly the only question they're asking is, Am I safe? Am I safe? Um the biggest part about that that's scary also is brainstem, so when a child is in their brainstem, they are shooting off cortisol and the Mm -hmm. cortisol is going off and that's not meant to be long-term. And actually long periods of cortisol release lead to the damage of the hippocampus and that's the learning and memory part of our brain. Um, And when it's on for too long, our corpus callosum, that's the part that connects our two brains and that's our shifting like our right hemisphere and left hemisphere. There's actually a major shrinkage shown in the corpus callosum to connect the hemispheres of the brain when there's trauma. So then to circle back is there is multiple things that can be trauma. It doesn't take something big for everyone to notice. It could be, you know, a few of the things that the ACEs list is emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual, emotional neglect is a big one. So parents who are just like, or teachers who are, tell kids to suck it up and move on and get over it, that is actually a form of neglect in teaching the children to push it down. Any sort of, another thing is how was the pregnancy? A lot of people don't give credit to the trauma maybe experienced in the pregnancy, but was the pregnancy healthy? Was there stressors during the pregnancy? Was the child ever in the NICU? Was the child adopted? What's the family history of trauma? Cause research shows that if the mother was depressed or traumatized, there's good indication that the baby will also experience that. And all of these things circle back to brain development and how we are interacting with our kids, either in the classroom and at home.
0: And of course it also includes drugs and alcohol and yes. or separated parents. Um, gosh, that's, So it gives you a a different way of thinking about kids as they're in your classroom and they're exhibiting behaviors that uh, that you're that, you know, maybe traditionally have been, uh, you know, something that would be punishable. Really, we have to ask ourselves the question, is this coming from really a point of pain? Is this coming from
1: trauma? Right. Uh, That's how we have to be careful. And that's why I love the choose love movement and the social emotional learning, because a lot of us, what happens is when a child walks into our classroom and he is in reptile brain, our mirror neurons look at him or look at her, look at the child who enters the class and can often fire our own amygdala in ourselves. So if a child comes into the room dysregulated, that usually reflects in you. So their amygdala is going off, saying they're in danger. That signals your amygdala to go off that you're in danger because we're dealing with a child who may be volatile and we might not know what comes next in his behavior. So the teacher then in turn sends off the amygdala, sends off their amygdala. So then they go into reptile brain. So now we have a child and a teacher, both in reptile brain, trying to decide which one's safe. And that's when we get to the get out of the classroom go to the principal's office right go go to alternative learning when honestly all that kid needs is to be assured of safety so that is always my number one tip for teachers and parents is check your bre- reptile brain are you in brain stem the more you're in brain stem the more you're role modeling to the child to be in brainstem, so we need to get to these kids by using our prefrontal cortex and that's going to be our calm and our logical thinking so separating a kid from the classroom yelling at a kid all that's doing is teaching them that they are in their correct brain and actually enabling them to live more in the reptile brain because you're confirming their beliefs that they're not safe and you
0: know what katie i have to admit and i admit this when i speak in schools that you know, when you don't have a certain level of emotional intelligence, you can't teach your children how to manage their emotions either. And, you know, I, I remember my boys would come up to me angry, right? I'd see Mm -hmm. that. And literally I can look back and, and now know exactly what was going on in my brain. I would be activated and I yes. would show back to them exactly what they were showing to me. And I didn't know what to do. So, you know what I would do? I would say, go to your room. Go, mm-hmm. You're in timeout. You need to calm down. You can get up off your bed when you're, when you're, you know, calmer. And it's like, I'm not teaching them how to manage their emotions. Cause I don't know how to manage my own. And yes. this is why it's so important um, to have this understanding Uh, And, and why it's important for parents to be a part of the choose love movement as well, because we have programs for parents and the community. I mean, we're all, we're all giving off these signals. In fact, the majority of our communication every day is nonverbal. It's not necessarily what we say. We can be saying kind words, but we can be displaying something else on our face or through our body movements in fact, when I was doing some research for this podcast, Katie, there, and I'm sure that you're familiar with this study on faces and yes. how traumatized kids had a really hard time reading the emotion between happiness and anger and fear and sadness on, on these subjects' faces and so they'd often misinterpret or see a neutral face as an angry mm-hmm. face. And then that would set them off.
1: Yes. Because yes.
0: they're in vigilant mode.
1: Absolutely. That's, they're just in their reptile brain searching for anything and not trusting really anyone, right? You kind of, when we meet these kids, a lot of them, we have to prove to them that we're safe. And sometimes how do we do that? I always say a little bit about me is, I adopted two children out of foster care three years ago. Um, I'm a registered play therapist. I've been EMDR trained. I have significant amount of trauma training. And I remember my funny story is when they first came to live with us, they were two and three. I told my husband, I said, now you just kind of sit back and watch how I walk with them. You know, or you know, you know, you watch how I work with them. You watch how I talk to them. Cause I'm gonna role model exactly how to handle this, and I'm walking him through. I think I scared my husband. I told him, I said, <laughs> "You never know with foster kids." I said, "They might light our house on fire." But we're just gonna work through it, and he looked like a deer in headlights and said, "Okay," and agreed. And so I set day. up this. Yeah, I know. So I set up this really gloomy picture because that's what I was used to, and I specialized in adoption and trauma and foster and all that. And so the day my kids came home. They my son, who is actually three at the time, about to turn four the next week, walked into his room, his beautifully painted room. First time he had a room to his cell. I had worked so hard it, on it. He spit on the floor and said, I hate it here. Well, what does this highly trained person over here do? I just wanted to hug him. And, and I no, my reptile brain went off and I said, what do you think you're doing? You don't spit on the floor in your n- new room but this was unsafe to me. This was a stranger in my house. This was a kid. And so I say that as my husband looked at me and said, really good job handling <laughs> it. <laughs> and But that day it just registered to me that we are all susceptible to handling it wrong. I have hours and hours of training and trauma and this is literally my specialty. And it took 30 seconds for me to go into reptile brain and explode on a baby in my home. And so that's why it's so important to recognize that we all have these triggers, but we can also all work on them. And that's also scary because I want you to think, I am educated in all this and I exploded, but what about the people and the children who come from communities and homes that have no emotional, like you said, who have no background, who had a history of no parents teaching them that emotional, intelligent stuff. Then we are having untrained parents who are are have no indicators of how to help kids. And that's just a really sad and scary place to be. So then when the kids coming to school, you teaching them social emotional learning is huge, but it's new to them. Yeah, there's a lot of kids who don't even know who I have kids who come to my office sometimes. And you wouldn't believe I just had a six or seven year old last week who I was going through basic emotions with them and mm-hmm. I asked them to make an anger face and they couldn't they had no idea because they're so disconnected wow and that's for survival yes exactly
0: yeah so I I think you know I, and I think I love that you shared that Katie and that you had the courage to share that about yourself and I always share, you know, my failings with my audiences because I'm just a person too, and we we all fail and make mistakes, and and that's uh, that's how we learn and we grow. Um, but you know, the the uh, I think maybe one of the only arguments against teaching social emotional learning in schools was, you know, this is the parents' uh, job; it should be taught at home and you know, I look at myself, like I, I I had good parents, you know, I had Mm -hmm. very little trauma growing up, uh, aside from my parents getting divorced and I was a college graduate and you know, I, I worked and then you have kids and that takes it to a whole nother level. They push your buttons and, uh, and you really have to be present And you have to understand Mm -hmm. what that means, like in the moment, not thinking about what happened at work, not not worrying about something in the future, but literally present with them and mindful of your thoughts and and how you are. And hopefully you are thoughtfully responding to your kids rather than reacting. And of course, the whole choose love movement premise is. Uh, You can't always choose what happens to you, but you can always choose how you respond and you can always respond with love. That is but that takes some skills and tools that takes being aware, that takes being mindful to thoughtfully respond with love, which is kindness, caring, concern, compassion. When we do that, we take our personal power back. We're in control And, uh, and we don't always do that with our kids. But of course, as you said, we always want to be whenever possible, uh, thoughtfully responding with our prefrontal cortex, which is where logic and reasoning <laughs> reside with our kids, uh, in in work environments, with friends. Of course, we always want our our thoughtful responses coming from there because we are in control when when we're thoughtfully responding from our what we call our human brain. and uh, and we're really not in control when we're, responding, uh, uh, reacting, as you said, from
1: our brainstem. So when I first became a therapist, I am very passionate about working with kids. I have known I've always wanted to, and I wanted to make sure that I gave kids the best possible treatment there was. So when all my research and looking around, I learned that trauma and any bad events actually store in our unconscious brain. So they store our unconscious, which is good to know, because the unconscious cannot be reached through talk therapy. It is almost 100 percent ineffective. However, play therapy is something that can bring the child in you. I, a lot of time there's two different types of play therapy. There's directive and non-directive directive is when you provide more details in what you want the child to do. And then non-directive would be like unstructured play. I utilize a mixture of these Um, with trauma kids. I love to do non-directive because it gives them the power in the situation. But research has shown that play therapy actually helps kids go through and process the trauma that's stuck in their unconscious brain that talking can't do. So a good example I have is several years ago, I had a client who, her, she wouldn't speak. She was a selective mute. She didn't speak. Her mom, I had known the family before and I knew there was pervasive trauma. I'd worked with older brothers and the mom brought her to me when she was four and said, Katie, she's about to start kindergarten or pre-K and she won't speak. She'll speak to no one. You know, what can we do? And so I brought her to the room and I said, let me just do a play therapy assessment with her. And all I did was give her tons of toys, what we call miniatures. And I put a sandbox in front of her and I gave her one directive and my directive was create a safe world. Mm -hmm. That's all I did. Mm -hmm. And I do, that's usually what I do to start off because that's going to indicate to me if the child has any basis of safety or not, Mm -hmm. you know, I have some kids who come in and they create a beach scene and it's beautiful. And then I have this little girl who came in, Didn't speak a word the entire session, but she opened my bag of miniatures and she pulled out every, she first pulled out a play knife and then she dug through my hundreds of miniatures and pulled out every male miniature I had, cut their throat and put (gasps) them under the sand one by one, cut their throat and put them under the sand, like back and forth. I mean, did it until everything was covered up. How old was she? She was four. And then and the reason I'll tell you, I knew a little bit of her development history since I worked with brothers. Mom had been severely abused by multiple men, had been in the ICU multiple times from abuse of men. And so she had witnessed all this. So here's a four year old coming to me. And a lot of people would say, oh, she doesn't know what's going on. So she's four. She comes. She gets out the play knife. She is not saying a word, not making eye contact with me nothing she hadn't spoken a word in like two years she pulls out every man miniature Uh, flits their throat digs them well then so then there's multiple men under the sand you couldn't see then she pulls out a a female a mom looking miniature and then a little girl she sets them on top of the sand and she stares at me and said me and mommy are safe now and uh, then that's one of the first words she had talked to a provider in years And I saw her two more times after that and she exceeded and excelled in kindergarten and walked into the class. But that's just what her brain needs to do. The brain cannot is physically not able to understand trauma. It does not make sense to us. That is not how our brains function. And so the way I explain it to people. So trauma is I equate it to like a library and trauma is equivalent to an exploded book. And so our brain is not mentally, does not handle that. So what happens is when our brain connects, it cannot process trauma. So the brain does one or two things with these exploded books. One, it'll pick up a piece and put it in a random book. So it could pick up a piece from, oh, Katie was in a F4 tornado. I'm going to file this in when she was five years old and eating ice cream. It files it in the wrong place. Wow. The other thing, it, yes, the other thing it does is that it will leave it on the floor and not clean it up. And those become landmines. So that is when you are you hear something or smell something and do something, and all of a sudden you're like, ooh, I don't know why, but that doesn't feel right. Mm, and you might not even correlate it. Right, but that's a landmine that wasn't cleaned up. So what play therapy does is it helps connect those two hemispheres. It helps strengthen, strengthen the corpus callosum, which we learned that, Cortisol actually visibly shrinks shrinks in studies. It helps strengthen the corpus callosum to help the left and right hemisphere connect so they can go around, get all the trauma pieces and form a book of its own so the kid or the mind can have control of that. So that day when that girl cut all those people, that was her saying, I have never had control of my life. I can't protect my mom. I can't protect my family. But her brain needed control over that. So what did she do? She took power, she hurt all those men, she buried them, and then she looked at me, smiled and said, "Me and mom are safe now." And she moved on. And she was
0: able to move on. You know, it's interesting Gavin De Becker in his book "Gift of Fear," he talks about the, the number one thing that men fear is that women will laugh at them, and the number mm-hmm. one thing that women fear is that men will kill us yeah wow, and you know and and that's that's just being a woman. and then you have this this uh, this little child that's witnessed so much trauma is uh, just amazing, but amazing also that she can have that experience and be able to move on. and that's you know neuroplasticity, right? Our brains, yes. can can heal. And they can heal at any age. So there's a lot of hope in what we're talking about.
1: Absolutely. And I think that goes back to the book analogy, because the one uh, misunderstood belief when people come to me is, can I forget about this? And no, you can't forget about it. Like, I mean, the brain naturally, I will say the brain naturally, if it's so severe, can block out and actually shut down pieces of your brain, um, which is huge. However, therapy is not to come and help it block it out, but it's to come and to put that book back together because when the book is together, it can be filed away. So then you can have as much understanding as possible to at least process it. So it, the goal of therapy is for it still to be there, but it to be filed away to take away the triggers of the trauma.
0: It's so, so incredible. Um, and of course, it reminds me that Jesse, uh, in addition to writing his chalkboard message, Jesse's the my six-year-old son that was murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And right before he was murdered, he wrote Nurturing, Healing, Love on our kitchen chalkboard. And of course, that's the impetus for the whole Jesse Lewis Choose Love movement. But he also left another message for his older brother. And that was, have a lot of fun. And so really... Uh, You know, the two most important things that we do on a daily basis are choose love, kindness, caring, concern, compassion in every situation, circumstance or interaction, because we take our personal power and control back when we do that, but also have a lot of fun. That's really important, too. (laughs) Huge. Huge. Yeah. So, uh, Katie, oh my gosh, thank you so much. I have learned so much from you today. My brain is swirling. This is so necessary. And of course, uh, the podcast is just talking about what you talk about in the extension program that you created for the Jesse Lewis Choose Love movement. This is on our extension program page. And they are a series of videos that you're going to be adding to that talk about trauma. They're short videos, but really informative and going over all of this stuff because really you can't just hear it once, but, um, it's a great resource. We're so thankful for our partnership with you, Katie, and looking forward to, Uh, other projects that we can work on in the future because this is something that everyone has to address it's here it's now and this allows us this understanding and knowledge that you have that you're imparting allows us to address the cause and therefore is the solution to a lot of suffering
1: in the future for the yes
0: doesn't have to happen
1: Right. Well, I appreciate you so much being passionate about this and being willing to advocate for the kids who need this. And so I appreciate you giving me some time to speak on this because I am passionate about it. And stuff like this really is what we'll see is what's going to change the world.
0: So if somebody's listening to this podcast, Katie, and has a question or is interested in you coming to their school and presenting, um, is it okay if we give them your contact information? Absolutely. That's awesome. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you for teaching us so much about childhood trauma. Thank you so much to the choose love podcast audience. You guys are awesome. Just by listening to this podcast, you're choosing love and you are helping to cultivate a safer, more peaceful and loving world. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I love you all. And We'll see you again. Have a lot of fun until the next podcast.
1: It's all part of us. We can all choose love. It'll lift you up if you live.